another pot of coffee is brewing and my third cup is almost finished. Hey, what can I say? I'm really trying hard to reduce my intake for my health, but slow and steady wins the race. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Welcome to season two, everyone. I'm here. I'm back. Not sure how it happened, but the last two weeks of planning vanished like they simply didn't exist. And here I am starting season two with what I hope is a bang. Well, at least I think so. Before I actually get into it all, I have been teasing about the show and some changes for this season over on Twitter and on Instagram, so I probably should tell you all about them beforehand, right? I am honestly, seriously so excited about all of these plans and what I'm going to be doing this season, as it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Okay, (laughs) seriously, stop yammering. And... I've got to stop babbling, otherwise I won't actually get round to telling you anything or get to the point of the episode this week. So just be known, there are changes. So here they are. For this season, I am going to be splitting my episodes in two. On Thursdays, I'm going to be talking about TV shows, breaking them down into quarters or breaking long seasons down into quarters at least, and talking about a season per month. No, no. I can hear you going, oh my God, does this mean we're going to get nothing but this show for an entire year? No, it doesn't mean I will be doing nothing but covering NCIS, for example, for the next year and a bit. I am going to be taking a single iconic season of a show I love and talking about it. There'll be no show ruining spoilers, though, I promise. Mental health is still going to be playing an important part in Not Before Coffee because without it, I wouldn't be playing true to myself at all. My mental health conditions are part of who I am, as I've said from the very beginning, and being upfront and honest about them helps me and I hope goes some way to helping some of you as well. Then, On Mondays, as I said, splitting it in two, yes, you are going to be getting me twice a week. Don't all clamour and applaud and excitement. I will be doing a bit of book talk. I have been reading a fair bit over the last two weeks. In fact, I've been reading a fair bit since I was born, but let's not go into that. And I've already got three books lined up and all of them I actually really enjoyed. Now, these changes do not mean that I have abandoned the old format completely. I will still pick a movie now and then, and I still have every intention of doing my second Chris Evans season next year. I'm not abandoning that one. Right, now I've got the announcements all out of the way, let's move on to the main attraction as I've been teasing for about two weeks, and that is Spaced. So, for those of you who aren't aware, Spaced is a British sitcom that aired for two seven-episode seasons, each episode being around 25 minutes, between 1999 and 2001. So, 20 years ago. Written by the two stars, Simon Pegg, in the days before Shaun of the Dead, Star Trek and Mission Impossible, and Jessica Stevenson, who is now Jessica Hines. And it was directed by Edgar Wright in the days before the Cornetto Trilogy and Scott Pilgrim. 
obviously. For a time, there was a lot of talk about there maybe being a season three of the show, but to be honest, it's perfection as it is, and though it would be nice at the same time, have you seen some of the reunion shows and reboots that there have been out there recently? Seriously, I think we can do without any of that happening to this show. If you're a fan of the Cornetto trilogy, then there is no doubt you'll watch this and definitely recognise some of the cast that appears throughout the entire thing. I have to be honest and say that as I watched this again incredibly recently, I was able to see many moments that possibly inspired situations that occurred in all three of those films and maybe other films that Edgar Wright has done since. I also have to be upfront here and say that Simon Pegg was my nerd crush for an absolute age because of his role in Spaced. So for all of you out there that haven't seen it, seriously, it's on Netflix right now. So what have you been waiting for? What's it actually about? Now, I'm going to be completely true to myself here and true to the show in many ways because there are certain elements of this that are going to get muddled in and out but I am talking about space and nothing else until we get to the mental health talk anyway. We're introduced to the main characters in a very clever way. Tim is begging his girlfriend for another chance pleading with her as she stands at an open window and Daisy is calling to someone out a window that things will never work between them. And the way it's shot leads you to believe that these are the two who are breaking up. Why not start at the end of it all and show us how it began? Perhaps that's the intention. But that's not it at all. Tim Bisley, played by Simon Pegg, has just been dumped by his long-term girlfriend, Sarah. She's moved on with a colleague of hers called Dwayne, who is played by Peter Serafinowitz. And I actually pronounced his name correctly who also plays Sean's roommate in Shaun of the Dead, Pete, and is, of course, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Which this now means that Tim has nowhere to hang his posters or his life-size gill monster costume. Daisy Steiner is living in a squat. Though to hear her tell it, it could be anything. But she can't stand it and wants to find somewhere else. To be perfectly honest, she's at the absolute end of her rope when it comes to this living situation and she is desperate to find somewhere else to go. When the pair meet in a local cafe, it's like kismet. If kismet were having a bit of a laugh at your expense, at least. She talks too much. He has little idea what she's saying, but they sort of gravitate towards each other. And when they see an ad in the paper for a two-bed flat for a professional couple, the game is afoot. Yes, I'm doing Sherlock Holmes. Daisy is incredibly gung-ho about everything. and She's not the sort of person who will take anything at all in her stride but at the same time she's the ruler of a city called procrastination where I'm queen and we find that incredibly soon after the pair move in together. The plan is perfectly simple. They will pretend to be a professional couple to persuade the landlord that they are the ideal tenants and get the flat. What they don't take into account is the fact that the landlady they end up meeting, Marsha Klein, will not be a silent character in the rest of their lives, but more a leading lady who has every intention of getting involved in absolutely everything. The story for our lead characters doesn't end with them getting their two-bed flat. It is simply the beginning, which is why the title of the episode is so perfect. It is literally just Beginnings. 
On their very first evening in the house, Tim meets Brian, an artist who lives in the basement flat, and over tea, wine and cigarettes, the residents start to get to know each other. There are so many things seriously to love about this show, from the characters to the stories to the obvious and subtle homage we get to everything from The Matrix to Bugsy Malone. Everything about Spaced is a geek's fantasy and it really makes me happy. A wannabe graphic novel artist, Tim works with Bilbo, played by the always wonderful Bill Bailey, at Fantasy Bazaar, a comic book store. Meanwhile, Daisy simply flits about and sort of pretends to be an adult. That's what I find so funny about this. I can remember when I got my first flat on my own and it was, I was gung-ho with the, oh, I'm going to be able to go out and sit on my balcony every morning and have a coffee and relax and then start my day. That doesn't ever happen. But that was my fantasy of being an adult and that's kind of where they seem to be the level they seem to be at at this point in time. I know it sounds as though I'm being incredibly unfair to Daisy. I don't mean to be, but she reminds me incredibly scarily of the person I was when I was in my early 20s, as I've just said, though I had a job I hated at the time. <laughs> Procrastination is her thing. She'll do anything to get away from the things she's struggling with carrying out sitting and staring at her typewriter and deluding herself into believing that she's actually doing something when she really isn't. Daisy and Tim have a very interesting dynamic and for a while you wonder if they're going to actually do this Ross and Rachel thing and get together. But luckily, and I, I really do mean luckily, they have an unusual friendship and though there seem to be occasional hints at having the potential to become more, it doesn't move to that point. They've bonded over tears, tea and quite a few joints. While we're getting to know more about Tim and Daisy, their character-defining foibles and their ambitions, we get introduced to their friends Mike and Twist. Mike, played by Nick Frost, is every inch the characters he embodies in pretty much every single film in the Cornetto trilogy. The friend with unusual hobbies. In Hot Fuzz, it's action movies. And in this, it's the Territorial Army. He's the perfect foil for Tim. And though he's intense when it comes to his guns and his robots, he can also be a slightly stabilising force, which feels weird when you see certain elements of his character. And then he'll come out with something that's like, oh my God, that makes total sense but it surprises you and you can't help but look at him in wonder when you realize that it really does make sense twist works in fashion well in as far as working at a laundrette can be classed as working in fashion she's daisy's best friend but in all honesty the sort of friend who you probably wouldn't trust to have your back in an argument she's hypercritical judgmental something of a fashion snob and the one person that believes her proverbial doesn't stink. Twist inserts herself even more into the group when she gets involved with Brian, slowly destroying his artistic drive, which he really doesn't need. I've already mentioned Marsha, the constantly inebriated landlady. She's another one we find out so much about as the show goes on, and at one point we discover that she was on the verge of Olympic stardom as a triathlete when she got knocked down by a car. This, it turns out, was the start of her dependence on alcohol as well as the end of her athletic career. 
not only did the guy knock her over and give her some bourbon, she also ended up marrying him, which is like, oh my God, really? She has a daughter called Amber, who we only get glimpses of throughout the series, but we definitely hear her. Daisy thinks of her in horror, as well as perhaps a bit of envy, because she's a young girl and Daisy has had to grow up. But Tim, well, Tim thinks of her as a goal. She's young, but not too young, because that would be really creepy, and therefore perky and energetic. As we never see more than the back of her head or her legs, we have very little idea about her, just that she has lots of young friends who like a loud party, and she loves to shout, scream, and argue with her mum. She was voiced by Jessica Stevenson in the show, and to be fair, you very rarely get to hear an actual word from her. It's more garbled shouting and screaming. And any time you saw the back of her head or her legs... She was played by actress Theo Park. There's so much that I could say about Spaced, why I love it, why it had such an incredible impact on an entire generation. But I guess I should start with the amazing number of influences that made an appearance throughout the two-season run of the show. Why not start at the very beginning? Because as Maria von Trapp has always said, that's a very good place to start. Every single episode of Spaced has a title that is so appropriate. The first episode is titled Beginnings, as I've already mentioned, and that's what it is. Not only the beginning of the series, but the beginning of a few friendships, starting with Daisy and Tim themselves. It's also the beginning of a journey. Throughout the episode, there are allusions to The King and I with Deborah Carr and Yul Brynner, Return of the Jedi, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Shining and 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as a rather stomach-churning exchange between Daisy and her boyfriend Richard, who is currently studying at Hell, sorry, Hull University, where they refer to each other as Boss Hog and Daisy Duke. Ugh. It doesn't matter how many times I see this scene, every single time I wince just a little bit. One of the most obvious references we get in this episode is to Scooby-Doo, though why Either of them think that they were ever Fred or Daphne is completely beyond me. I love the way that when the camera pans back and we get a full view of the pair in their flat, they are clones down to clothes, hair, the lot of Velma and Shaggy. It's, it's very, very cleverly done. Daisy clearly has a very defined idea of what makes a geek, including a fascination with Gillian Anderson during her days as Dana Scully in The X-Files. Tim refuses to rise to the bait, even though it's right there. Though he does have an action figure of Gillian Anderson on his desk and definitely enjoys spending time with his well-worn copy of an old magazine spread. Of course, by season two, Gillian Anderson has been replaced in his affections as his wall is covered with a large poster of season two Buffy. And the reason I recognise it's season two Buffy is because I had this poster on my wall, as well as the matching one with Buffy and Angel in it. In fact, I probably have it still somewhere in a box because I, I am a bit of a hoarder, though a neat one. I'm not going to die with a load of boxes falling on top of me because I just don't have the room and I... I go insane. 
I think that a lot of what I find fun about Spaced is the fact that so much of it is relatable. I'm the same age as Daisy and Tim, and I was in my mid-twenties when Spaced was released, and things that are used as storytelling devices, such as the animated Grange Hill credits when Daisy is talking about her competitive streak, or mentions by Tim of the Red Hand Gang when he's in the pub, which was a common morning show during the school summer holidays in the early to mid-1980s, they're so familiar to me. I loved the Red Hand Gang, and though we weren't allowed to watch Grange Hill as my mum didn't approve of the storytelling, despite the fact that my secondary school wasn't exactly heaven, I still know the theme tune and the credit sequence because a home band didn't mean I didn't see it elsewhere. Thank you to anybody who I grew up with who had a TV and would let me watch it. As I've already said, there are so many moments that speak to me as an 80s kid. And looking at forums and reviews, 19s kids who were teens when this came out also found this influential. Who doesn't see Private Iron in season two and immediately think of Robocop, the original one, or Xylon from Battlestar Galactica? And again, here I mean the one with Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict, not the 2000s reboot or instinctively know that the two secret agents played by Mark Gattis and Kevin Eldon were 100% inspired by Agent Smith from The Matrix. In season one, having been introduced to the main players, Marsha, Brian, Mike, Twist, Tim and Daisy, we are immediately pulled into their adventures. We get the classic club night, complete with drink, drugs and incredibly loud music, and their insane cycle courier friend, Tyres, we get a mission moment during which Tim and Mike thrive because they're getting to live out their fantasies with walkie-talkies and camouflage when Colin goes missing and it turns out he's been taken by a psychotic animal-testing scientist. It's at moments like this that we see how the fantasy in their heads melds with the reality that is their normal lives. For some reason, when I see this psychotic scientist, I can't help thinking of Judge Doom from who framed Roger Rabbit, played by Christopher Lloyd. Maybe that was intentional, maybe it wasn't. I don't want to say that there is any formula to the series, but there is no denying that there are a few patterns when it comes to the way that the episodes were written. They all have a beginning, a middle and an end. <laughs> That's one really good thing about the series itself. You're always left wanting more, but at the same time, you do get closure on the storyline. There's a very subtle story arc that runs throughout both seasons one and two, that being the fake relationship that everyone but Marsha is aware of as being fake from the start. And part of me here thinks that Marsha is a bit of a closet romantic, or perhaps it's just the fact that everything is seen through a haze of alcohol and cigarette smoke. And she doesn't see all the questionable things such as Daisy snogging the very mature looking paper boy at their housewarming. Tim's desire to be a graphic artist, which we do see come true towards the end of the show. And of course, the occasionally mentioned tale of the reason why Mike was originally suspended from the Territorial Army. His decision to steal a tank and invade Paris alone. And of course, we also get Daisy's writing ambitions. The season one finale is appropriately titled Ends, following the same pattern started in the first episode, Beginnings, though perhaps it should have been called Begins. 
Daisy and Tim are at their wits' end with each other. They've been living in close proximity for a while. God knows how they'd have coped during quarantine. And Tim, who hasn't moved on from his failed relationship with Sarah, is over the moon when she calls and tells him that she's split up with Dwayne. Unsurprisingly, Daisy is not impressed when it looks as though Tim's just going to accept her back into his life despite the pain their breakup put him through. And this is something she had to help him cope with. And I get where she's coming from. Clearly, Daisy doesn't trust him to make the right decision. Sure, he'll think with the wrong brain. And this causes them to row, a row that is cleverly punctuated with a game of Tekken that Daisy has been playing. Luckily, Tim shows a lot more in the way of sense than anyone has given him credit for. And though Sarah wants him back, he walks away. Everyone gets the ending that they have been working towards. Daisy sees the ending of her writer's block. Tim sees the ending of his desire for an unattainable woman. Mike sees the ending of his exile from the Territorial Army. And Brian sees the ending of his desolate life, as he's now with Twist. Though that may well not be a good thing, given what drives him and his art in the first place. Though the tone doesn't change between seasons one and two, we see the changes in all the relationships. Daisy and Tim settled into a comfortable place before Daisy inherited some money and earned a little from writing, and then she went travelling to Asia for three months. However, when she gets back, it's as though she's never been gone, even though her room does look like something out of Platoon. They're on the same wavelength, pub, tea, and talking about their dreams rather than doing anything about them. That's not to say that other things haven't changed. Twist and Brian are in a very strange relationship that we see through in a set of incredibly disturbing Polaroids. Marsha and Amber are still rowing incredibly loudly, punctuated by slamming doors and screaming. And Colin, the dog, well, he's as adorable as ever, though possibly harbouring some resentment towards Daisy for leaving him. Tim's loathing of the Phantom Menace gets so bad during season two that his laid-back boss Bilbo actually fires him, and he's serious this time. But he's not unemployed for long, though his new job does make you question whether every single comic book shop is simply a clone of the last one you visited. Every single time I see this bit, I can't help but wonder if this isn't some subtle up yours to non-nerds who assume that everyone who likes comic books and anything sci-fi or fantasy is exactly the same. Or perhaps it's the whole everyone is replaceable message, showing that everyone is replaceable because where there's one Tim, there's another. Who knows? But to be honest, I actually don't care because I love it anyway. And then there's Sophie. Though she doesn't come into it until incredibly close to the end of the second season, her impact is massive. She's responsible for helping Tim achieve his dream of working for Dark Star Comics, which is a play on Dark Horse Comics, the home of Hellboy and Sin City, as well as the season eight comic of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Though it's also the name of a 1974 spoof sci-fi film by John Carpenter. However, she's also the start of their downfall. It's amazing how one lie designed to hurt no one is the catalyst for everything that goes wrong for everyone who lives in the flats. The lie has been eating at Daisy for over a year, 
But it's only when Marsha accuses Tim of being a cheating cheater who cheats, having spied him enjoying a moment or two of tonsil hockey with the stunning Sophie, who I think personally has a little bit of Angelina Jolie and hackers about her, that she gives in and blurts out the truth in traditional Daisy style. So a poorly explained babble is what we get. You could probably hear a pin drop and stick to the floor at the local when Daisy admits that she she and Tim were never a couple, that they lied in order to get the flat. Had Marsha not been the only one in the dark, it would have probably gone a lot better. At least I think it would have done. But there's no way they can all lie and say that they didn't know when they did. For me... Marsha is like the jelly in a trifle. She's the one who holds everything together, sort of like the mum in a friendship group. You know, there's always one, the person who organises everything, who makes sure that people get home okay and everything else. That's Marsha, even if she is the one who drinks more than everybody else and spends her life looking at everything through a haze of cigarette smoke. So when she goes off to lick her wounds, everything starts to fall apart, starting with Tim and Mike's relationship then twist leaves and heads to Manchester. Colin has been running away from the flat every day because he's miserable and just a little bit angry at Daisy and a kindly, and here I am saying that, I'm using that term very loosely because there is something a bit sinister in this woman's motives. Old lady has been spoiling him rotten with attention and from the looks of her home, she's just a little bit obsessed with miniature schnauzers. Of course, We can't leave things like that. All these characters deserve a happy ending. And with Leaves, the final episode in the season and the series, we sort of get that. Colin, when faced with the reality that he could end up being called Lancelot, runs back to Daisy and Tim as quick as his little furry legs can carry him. Sophie gets a job working for Marvel, lucky cow, though I am not exactly sure as to what she did at Dark Star. So just as Tim has settled into a very interesting relationship with her that includes makeup and thongs for him, she's about to leave. Daisy has given up on her idea of making it in the city and is headed off to Colwyn Bay for a job at their local newspaper. Mike has been promoted in the TA. Brian is painting again after Twist's departure had him revisiting old emotions. And Marsha, well... She's selling up and moving on. It could be selfish or it could be that they actually do care about her. But the gang get together to persuade Marsha that they want her back and that she doesn't need to sell their home. See? Double motive there. But they need to make a bloody spectacular, in her words, gesture to convince her that they're sincere. So what do we get? We get Say Anything with a Take That song and a tank. The thing is that despite the fact that the show has so many elements of fantasy wrapped up in the more realistic storylines, the characters are incredibly relatable. Who doesn't want to be Tim, the man who almost always has a smile on his face, hangs around with his best friend and can still enjoy childish things? Or Daisy, who, despite moments where reality really gets her down and she ends up in floods of dramatic tears, lets herself get lost in the moment more often than not. She's the one who sees the silver lining on every cloud, even when things are questionable. Sure, there are moments when she pulls mum voice, when she tries to call things to order in the flat, such as when Colin the dog goes missing, and she can fall apart at a moment's notice. 
picking the extreme choice when she doesn't know what else to do, such as when Marsha puts the house on the market and an estate agent with just that right amount of smarm starts to show other people around their flat. And she decides that moving to Colwyn Bay is the best resolution. But this is what makes her the perfect partner for Tim. And ultimately, when he has to choose between stopping Daisy from leaving and saying a dramatic airport goodbye to Sophie as she heads off for her new life with Marvel in Seattle, it's not a choice he has to think about for long. Friendship comes first, even if it is just a bit of an odd one. And here it is. We say goodbye to the weird and wonderful residents of 23 Meteor Street for the last time. Though, as I mentioned earlier, there have been rumours of a season three for a very long time. I am happy that it ended where it did, because it was a perfect little bite full of nostalgia and fun and friendship and oddity that is great exactly as it is. I would never claim to recognise every single thing that made an appearance in Spaced, because there's definitely a lot. I have made a bit of a list and I made a load of lists while I was watching the show. So here are the illusions that I remember immediately off the bat. Grange Hill, Scooby-Doo, The Royal Family, The X-Files, The Matrix, Say Anything, Murder, She Wrote, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a considerable number of dramatic 1930s movies, The Dukes of Hazard, Disney's Fantasia, Baywatch, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, The Magic Roundabout, Animal Magic, Platoon, The Terminator, Battlestar Galactica, and Robocop. And breathe. I have no doubt that there are loads I have missed. And if you want to add to that list, send a message and let me know. There are always questions that I ask myself when I watch anything. And though I think I have made my love of Spaced pretty obvious... I still need to ask them. Did I enjoy it? Yes. <laughs> That's a silly question, but I have to ask. It's a pretty regular rewatch, something I will put on in the background that ends up grabbing all of my attention. Will I watch it again? Yes, definitely. I actually found this on my watch it again list when I went to rewatch for this episode. And that's where it's been for a good few years. It's one of the first things I watched when I first got Netflix, though it is also available on 4OD in the UK. And I've probably also watched it there. Channel 4 in its time has produced some really good comedy shows, to be fair. How would I recommend this to someone who's never seen it? Wow. There is so much I could say, but I think I would start with It's What Came Before the Cornetto Trilogy, the first lengthy project that Edgar Wright worked on with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. You can see elements of all of those films in this before the films even existed. It's clever, sarcastic, funny, a great balance of characters, the absurd and the sensible all in one great big cocktail glass. So there it is, spaced. Watch it if you haven't. Rewatch it if you have. Great fun for all the family. Well, not the youngest kids unless you have a sensor button in the house because there's a fair bit of language in it. But you do you. So how are things in the coffee household this week? It's been two weeks since I was last here talking to you. 
And in that time, I have had a lot of emotional ups and downs. I found out that my diabetes medication isn't doing its job properly, which sent me on a little bit of a panicked spiral. I had an employment review at work, took a finance exam, which, though I passed, still fills me with dread. I had my annual property check, which always ends with a promise that something will get fixed, but nothing ever does. And I had an absolutely horrendous panic attack, courtesy of nothing. A panic attack over nothing? I know that this sounds absolutely ridiculous. Quite often my panic attacks have a reason, albeit usually one that is so minute to many it would make absolutely no sense at all. However, the other night I was sitting in the lounge reading and listening to According to Jim on Disney Plus, it's great background sound, when this horrific feeling of dread came out of absolutely nowhere. You know the feeling many refer to as someone walking over their grave. That's what this was like. Sudden chills, the hair on the back of my neck and a momentary shudder. And then I just couldn't settle. I was fidgety. My stomach was rolling so much that I ended up being sick. And no matter what I did, the feeling just wouldn't go away. By the time I went to bed, my heart was racing in my chest and I could sort of taste it. Yeah, to me, panic has a taste. It's bitter, acidic and it burns. No, it wasn't acid reflux. I know it sounds weird, but had there been something to actually cause the panic, I would have felt better about it. I would have at least been able to voice my fears. This time, there was nothing. I was feeling sick, nervous, unable to sleep for no reason, and no sleep leads to further anxiety and carries over into the next day. I wish I could say that it went quickly, that I was able to lie down and go to sleep, but this anxiety led to indigestion, which led to me sitting up for half the night trying desperately to calm down. Lying down was painful. Shutting my eyes just led to more panic. I loathe this cycle and no amount of therapy has managed to move me away from it. Doesn't matter what I've done. I've done CBT. I've done immersion therapies. I've done mindfulness. You name it nothing has worked and it is so frustrating because it should. By 3am I was sitting in the lounge with a cup of tea, the TV on and episodes of According to Jim playing. Finally at 4.45, just two hours before my alarm goes off for work, I managed to doze off. It wasn't great sleep but it at least it was something. So what do I get from this? I need sleeping pills? Just kidding. I like to be in control and sleeping pills take away that control and they don't always lead to a good night's sleep either. I was prescribed them once and I was so resistant to the idea that I ended up taking them only when I had failed to fall asleep by two or three o'clock. That then led to me falling asleep at my desk which was a great look when the big boss came in for the day. Panic attacks can come from anywhere at any time there doesn't have to be a cause or a reason. They can just happen and when they do they are one of the scariest things. To some people they can feel like a heart attack and to others they're an upset stomach and nausea. Whatever they feel like they are real and they are terrifying but that doesn't mean there is no way out. Don't ever feel like you can't talk to someone about them. When I lived with my grandmother I would often go into her room and speak with her I didn't tell her that I had panic attacks because that was something she really didn't understand. But we'd just talk and eventually I'd calm down enough that I could sleep. 
I then had the luck of a friend on the other side of the world for whom my 3am was only her 7pm and I could just call her or chat with her online until the feelings faded. Panic attacks are horrid. You can't just will them away. I wish you could, (laughs) but you can push through them. Do something that distracts, whether that's reading a book or watching something mindless on TV. Meditate a while. Focus on your breathing. Just do something that distracts you from what's troubling you. And I honestly say that I found if I lie in bed when I'm having a panic attack, it makes it worse. I know distraction won't make it go away forever, but it can help for a moment, especially if it's two o'clock and you're desperate to get to sleep because you've got work in six hours. So that's it for this, the first episode of season two. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop opens on Monday with my first review. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review over on Podchaser. I love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>